0: This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. City of Brass Okay, let's start by getting this out of the way. Yes, we cheated. If you look at the title of this episode, you'll see that the word of the week is actually three words. City of Brass And we understand if that upsets you. After all, this podcast only exists because we're a couple of overly pedantic nitpickers who take wordplay very seriously. But it is also important to remember that we are artists. And sometimes, for the sake of style, we have to bend or break the rules. It's not about always following the rules. Sometimes it's about knowing the best rules to break for dramatic effect. If it makes you feel better, We'll introduce this week's episode by saying, This is GM Nominal Phrase of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. This is GM Nominal Phrase of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. We spent the last couple of weeks wandering the outer plains, exploring the branches of mighty trees that use magical intelligence-boosting need, and plying the course of rivers that absolutely aren't on fire and don't make you lose all of your memories. But let's leave the outer planes and its strange conduits and passages behind. Let's go inside. Let's visit the inner planes, the planes of the elements. Each of the elemental planes, as well as the intermediate planes of ooze, ice, smoke, magma, radiance, mineral, steam, lightning, ash, dust, vacuum, and salt, each of the elemental planes is a seething, churning mass of its raw element and it's peopled by elemental creatures. But one of the things, and you can take this as good or bad, one of the things that the Planescape setting taught us is that people are pretty much people wherever you go. It doesn't matter if they are alive, or dead souls, or elves, or devils, or angels, or centaurs except half-ram instead of half-horses. People are people, and life is life, everywhere in the cosmos. And so, there are many, many, many cities and towns spread across the plains. For example, in the heart of the Nine Hells, you have the City of Dis. In the center of the plains, atop an infinitely tall spire, you have Sigil, City of Doors. And in the middle of the endless, churning, burning sea of raw elemental fire that is the Plain of Fire, you have the City of Brass and except for the fact that the locals look a little different, and the landscape might be an infinite void or a blasted hellscape or literally on fire. They are still just cities where people live and work and thrive. The City of Brass was introduced in Jeff Grubb's Manual of the Plains. In that book, it was described as a massive citadel, home to the Ifrit and their Grand Sultan. Like everything cool and evocative in d and it got more and more lore piled upon it over time. Once upon a time, for example, Dzunk of Oerth tried to conquer it using the magical Codex of the Infinite planes, and failed because one powerful wizard was no match for four million fire genies, as it turns out. Other folks moved in over the years, living alongside the Ifrit. Surtr, the god of fire giants, lives there nowadays. Emix. The Fiery Prince of Elemental Evil has some presence in the city. Kosoth, Tyrant Lord of Fire Elementals, lives there as well. The list goes on. The Ifrit are, of course, a type of genie. In the original 1974 box set, two creatures appeared. The jinn and the Ifrit. Now, these creatures were different, but related. The Ifrit were fiery humanoids with a definite Arabesque style. And the jinn, well, if you have any experience with a certain blue-skinned Arabian wish-granting spirit voiced by Robin Williams and/or Dan Castellaneta, you know the jinn. Yep, the jinn were genies, and it was explained that the jinn and the Ifrit were mortal enemies. Over time, other cousin creatures were added: the Tao, the merid, and the jan. All appeared in the Monster Manual too by Gary Gygax in 1983, after being previewed in Dragon Magazine. The Tao and Merid also appeared in the famous module The Lost Caverns of Sojkanth, and once they appeared, being basically earthy humanoid spirits and watery humanoid spirits, the family was complete. And by the time Second Edition rolled around, Jin, Ifrit, Merid, and Dao were all classified as different types of genies and genies became much more closely tied to the elemental planes and their respective elements. What's actually kind of funny is the idea of jins being a particular type of genie and jinns and ifrit being separate entities. As you've probably guessed, all of this was very heavily inspired by Arabian folklore, mythology, and religion. In fact, the jinn are one of three types of sentient creatures created by God according to the Quran. Now, I have to warn you, The next passage is going to inadvertently connect Dungeons & Dragons, Islam, and Sonic the Hedgehog. Specifically the 2006 reboot of the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise, which is widely accepted to be the worst video game of the modern era. And as we have played through the game in its entirety, we have no reason to dispute that claim. In the beginning, God created three sentient beings. angels. Humans and jinn. Humans were made of clay, angels were made of light, and jinn were made of fire. And while the traditional view outside of the Islamic faith is that jinn are akin to demons, the truth is that jinn, like humans and unlike angels, have free will. They can choose for themselves. Jinn are not inherently good or evil or malevolent or benign. And that caused a bit of a problem. See, when God created the first human, Adam, he commanded all of the angels and all of the jinn to bow to Adam in supplication. But one jinn refused, and as punishment, he was cast out of paradise and given the name Shaitan. And if that sounds suspiciously like Satan, well, it's not a coincidence. But his original name was Iblis. Iblis's sin was hubris, pride, and after he was cast out, He dedicated himself to inciting humanity to evil. Now this is where the Sonic the Hedgehog part comes in. And again, we're really sorry about this. In that game, a prideful king attempted to harness the power of the gods. In the end, his kingdom was nearly destroyed, and he ended up having to seal away an evil entity of pure fire called Iblis. Iblis resided in his daughter's heart, and would be unleashed if she ever gave in to desperation and sadness. But what's the D&D connection there? Sure, we have an elemental creature made of fire, and we have similar names. But how do we go from free-willed magical spirits created by God, one of whom rebelled and became the devil, to Jinn, Ifrit, Merid, and Dao? And for that matter, how do we get to the wish-granting singing genies that we remember from popular movies like Aladdin, and less popular movies like Kazam. Did you see that movie, by the way? Don't. It stars Shaquille O'Neal as a creepy rapping genie who lives in a boombox and has a very troubling relationship with a teenage boy. And where does the City of Brass come into all of this? After all, that sounds like a pretty cool place, doesn't it? Well, first of all, what you have to understand is that the jinn of Islam... Are actually a lot like people. They have free will, they have social structures, they have kings and queens, all sorts of things. Except insofar as they are magical beings made of smokeless fire, their lives aren't much different from ours. To the point where the Quran treats them pretty much the same as it treats humanity. Muhammad, the prophet of the Islam faith, was sent as a messenger to both humanity and the jinn. And when the day of judgment comes, the jinn will be judged alongside humans, and consigned to either paradise or hell. And thus, the jinn are held up to the same moral standards as humans, and must follow the same paths to salvation. But the jinn actually appear to predate the Islamic faith in literature. In fact, the name jinn comes from an Arabic word meaning hidden or unseen. The pre-Islamic Arabic world was heavily steeped in the belief in spirits. And among them were magical spirits that lived underground, hidden away from humanity, which became known as Jinn. As for classifications of Jinn, that's where things get a little complicated. You've probably figured out that Jinn and Genie are basically the same word, but the idea of different types of Jinn is not unique to D&D. The trouble is, there are a lot of different traditions about how to break jinn down into different groups. One of the most well-known comes from the prophet Muhammad. He explained that there are three kinds of jinn. Those that have wings and can fly, those that take the forms of animals like snakes and dogs, and those that live unknown among humans. The animal ones are usually associated with wickedness, or at least mischief, and there are lots of superstitions about avoiding them. For example, one belief goes that you shouldn't burn candles unattended lest a gin in the shape of a rat set your house on fire. The winged ones used to fly close to heaven, according to some beliefs, and eavesdrop. They would pass along what they learned to fortune tellers. But nowadays, djinn's that try that stunt get blasted with fireballs. But, aside from the threefold breakdown, there is another interesting way of classifying them one that seems to be a little bit more well-known and popular. And certainly, it's the one that informed D&D the most. According to that tradition, there are five types of djinn. First are the Merid. They are the most powerful of the jinn and possess great knowledge and magic. They are sometimes described as blue-skinned. It is said that they served kings and that they used their magic to grant wishes. Next are the Ifrit. They dwell deep underground in complex societies similar to human societies. They are immune to mortal weapons, but vulnerable to magic. They are often depicted as fiery beasts, usually with wings. Ifrit are free-willed, but they do have a reputation for wickedness. The Jan are desert-dwelling shapeshifters. They appear in the form of whirlwinds or dust devils or sometimes as camels or other animals. They have an affinity for humans and will lead desert wanderers to oases. They are the ghoul, which is where we get the monster ghoul, which is a cannibalistic shapeshifter and blood drinker that dwells in tombs and graveyards. Gul and Jan are mortal enemies. And finally, there are the Shaitan, the Jinn who serve as the minions of Shaitan and strive to corrupt humanity. And that pretty much sums up everything that has fed into the D&D view of genies as well as the pop culture view of genies. Robin Williams, or Dan Castellaneta, it turns out was a Merid. But what about the City of Brass? And how do genies get stuck in bottles anyway? Well, actually, our Merid friend can help us out if we're willing to ignore the biggest meta-plot hole in a Disney movie ever. When Aladdin, the Disney Aladdin, releases Genie from his bottle, the Genie launches into a song explaining who he is and what he's about. And it begins, well, Alibaba had his 40 Thieves. Scheherazade had a thousand tales. And then it goes on to explain how the Genie is so much better and different from those other things with his brand of magic that never fails. See it? See the metapot problem? Doesn't it drive you crazy? No? Fine. Let's explain, and that will get us to the end of the mystery of the city of Brass and imprisoned Jin. So there was this book called 1001 Nights, though you may know it simply as Arabian Nights. The history of the book is actually fascinating because no one is quite sure what the history is. It seems to have been compiled over literal centuries, and it contains signs of Indian, Persian, Syrian, and Egyptian influence. And the reason why it's so complicated is because the book is nothing more than a collection of short folk tales and legends and stories dating from anywhere between the 8th and 13th centuries. However, the book itself contains a framing device, a sort of meta-story about why all these stories are compiled together. You know how the Princess Bride is about a grandfather reading a sick kid a book? That's a framing device. One thousand and one nights amps that up to eleven. The story goes that there was this king named Shariar, who discovered his wife had been cheating on him, and he became so embittered by the betrayal that he came to hate women, but he still loved sex. So his solution was to marry a virgin every day, sleep with her, and then execute her the next day. He gave his vizier, his advisor, the job of finding new virgins. But the kingdom eventually ran out of virgins, except for the vizier's own daughter, Scheherazade. And she volunteered, because she had a plan. After the wedding, when Scheherazade and King Shahryar retired to the only honeymoon suite in history ever to be rented by the hour, she started telling him a story. But she leaves the story on a cliffhanger, and the king is so intrigued by the story that he stays her execution so she can finish it the next night. The next night, she finishes the story and then immediately starts another. She leaves that one on a cliffhanger, And you can see where this goes. For a thousand and one nights, she keeps telling half stories. And ultimately, the king falls in love with her. In some versions, she also has kids. And that's what makes the king finally not execute her. The book is just a collection of some of the stories she told the king. And they include Aladdin and his wonderful lamp. And also the story of Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves and also seven different stories about Sinbad and a bunch of others. Now you see the problem. Because Aladdin is a story that takes place inside the story of Scheherazade. The genie could reference Ali Baba, but he couldn't possibly know about Scheherazade because he can't know about the author and narrator of the story he is in. Drives you crazy, doesn't it? But another story from that book is the city of brass. Remember how some jinn, like Ifrit, are particularly vulnerable to magic? So, King Solomon, THE King Solomon, had a magic ring that allowed him to enslave djinns. He would use them in his armies and he would seal them away in brass bottles if they offended him. Two adventurers, Talib and Musa, are hired by the king to find the bottles. The duo discovers an ifrit that was imprisoned by Solomon, and his clues lead them to a massive dark-walled city with towers made of brass. The City of Brass. They deal with magical curses and ultimately find an embalmed undead princess. When Talib wants to take her treasure he is killed by magical copper statues. Musa, meanwhile, ignores the treasure and seeks only the brass bottles. He eventually finds them and frees the imprisoned djinn who gratefully fly away. Of course, the whole story is a lot longer than that. And this story has gone on long enough. So how can you use this in your game? First of all, grab a copy of 1001 Nights, It's full of really amazing stories with fencing, fighting, torture, poison, true love, hate, revenge, giants, hunters, bad men, good men, beautiful ladies, snakes, spiders, pain, death, brave men, cowardly men, strong men, chases, escapes, lies, truths, passion, miracles. Or maybe that's another book. Read that book too. It's actually better than the movie even though it lacks Carrie Elwes and Andre the Giant. But second of all, and we'll make this brief, as cool as it is to assume that life is the same pretty much anywhere, that's sort of a cheap way out. The coolest things about the djinn isn't that they are basically people. Ifrit aren't cool because they have cities and kings and weddings. All of the wonderful magical planes of the world get kind of boring if life there is the same as life anywhere. But that's just us. And if you don't agree with us, at least you have a good book to read. Two. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by The Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventures.com.